Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, if this is your first time or one of your first times, I appreciate you coming out. I know sometimes it's hard to come to a new place. We're grateful. And if you're joining us online, um, thank you for doing that. Okay, off the top of your head, does anybody know what curate means? I think I'm going to take that class just because I don't know what curate means. You can curate your time. Steve, you don't know what that means, do you? I don't either. Okay. Um, so I went to Texas A&M. It was a city metro kit. But we had the school of agriculture. We had the vet school. So on my dorm floor in my freshman year, I meet people from Snook and Old Dime Box and places I've never heard of before. And these were small town agricultural people. And I learned some things. And I want to share just one of those things I learned. Can I do that? Share one of those things I learned from you? Now, you agricultural people, you'll be impressed with this. So you ready? Do you know, Devin, you're an agricultural guy. You'll be impressed with this. Do you know how you tell if a healthy, uh, an apple tree is healthy? If it produces healthy apples. Isn't that great? Four years they went to school to be able to learn this stuff, and I figured that right out. Well, there's a point to this. Just as healthy apples are a sign of a healthy apple tree, I want to suggest that joy is the product of a healthy Christian life. And why? Why is it? That's what I want to talk about today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open that to Psalm 126, we're going to go all the way through this um, verse, uh, this chapter, asking this question, why is joy the product of a healthy Christian life? So we are in this series entitled Hope Again. We just started by saying, you know, if, if we have hope, we can keep going. If we lose hope, there's nothing left. And we're looking in the Psalms from now until Labor Day just to see that there's a reason to hope. Um, I suppose every sermon I do, I lean on the insight of others, commentators, scholars, but never more so than, than this sermon. So in 1985, I was in my first full year staff with Campus Crusade. I was in Fort Collins, Colorado, living with a bunch of guys. And I walked into my roommate's um, bedroom, and I looked on his bookshelf, and there was this book entitled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson. And what he did was he took a chapter, 15 chapters, he looked at Psalms 120 to 134, the song of ascents that the, the Jewish people would use when they went up to Jerusalem to worship. And I thought I'd read a chapter, and I read the whole book like that. I was just drawn in. And that book really kindled my love for the Psalms, and shortly after that I started reading five Psalms and a proverb a day, which I still do most of the time. But, but I was drawn to that book, and particularly uh, this, what he wrote on this Psalm, Psalm 126. And a lot of it has to do with my personality. I am a person who catastrophizes. So I, something gets going, and I imagine worst case of what can happen, and I stay fixated there. And I get stressed and I get worried about it and it usually never happens. And it drives my wife crazy. She's one of these steady people. And she says to me, Andy, explain to me the problem here. Babe, don't you see what can happen here? No, I don't. I really don't. But I am drawn to this psalm because it talks about joy. That no matter where God is, what's going on in our life, God is there and at work in it. And so that's where we start in Psalm 126 verses 1 and 2. It says, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. 
And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So let me set context what's going on there. In 586, due to the people of Israel's rebellion and rejection of God, God removed his hedge of protection, and Babylon overran the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, destroyed the temple, and the people were carried off to live as refugees in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. Now, 100 years before that happened, the prophet Isaiah wrote that that was going to happen. There would be 70 years of captivity, And then that God would raise up a new ruler named Cyrus of the Persians, and he would set the people free. So 170 years before this is all going down, God calls his shot. And in fact, that's what happened. They went into captivity, 70 years later, Persia defeats Babylon, and Cyrus, a Persian king, no interest in the God of Israel, you can go back. More than that, uh, the city was destroyed, and so a guy named Nehemiah wanted to rebuild the wall of um, Jerusalem. Well, he made an appeal to the king of Persia at that time named Darius, or Artaxerxes. He said, yeah, I'll I'll let you do that, and I'll fund it. I'll I'll give you the the wood and the lumber you need to do that. Then Ezra wanted to rebuild the temple. Another Persian king named Artaxerxes said, yeah, I'll do that. I'll give you all the supplies you need, and I'll even give you the animals you need for your animal sacrifices. And so the, the psalmist is looking back on that and thought, you know, we were 70 years with, with no hope. Then God, according to Q, changes who's on the world power, brings in this guy Cyrus, he lets us go, and then he raises up these two other kings that help us rebuild our wall and rebuild our temple. We look back on that and we rejoice. God's big. He's done great things in our past. So Eugene Peterson uh, wrote the message. Some of you know it's a, a translation, modern day language. I think Peterson has a gift for words. I want to show you how he wrote Psalms 1 and 2, or how he translated it. It seemed like a dream, too good to be true. When God returns Zion's exiles, we laughed, we sang, we couldn't believe our good future. We were the talk of the nations. Here's what they said. Here's what the Sarni nation says. God was wonderful to them. They saw it, even the four nations. So, man, that God was something. But do you know that's not just kind of a one-off on how God works? That's God's M.O. There's a guy named Joseph. He's one of 12 brothers. His brothers were jealous with him, and they sold him into slavery, and then he started to rise, but then there was a false accusation against him, and he ended up in prison, and and God works through that and brings him to where he's the number two man in all of Egypt. And there's a famine, and the house of Jacob is starving, and, well, Joseph is God's provision. And then, oh, they end up in slavery, and, and there's this guy, Moses, who's a little impulsive, and he kills somebody, and God says, you need some time to bake, so you're 40 years on the backside of the desert. And he says, one day, Moses, you're the man, and I'm going to have you lead my people. Moses said, man, I got no credibility. I got no degree. I got nothing. No, just, just go with me here, Moses. And God works through him miraculously, 10 plagues, and, and leads the people out of slavery after 400 years. Bang, God shows up. Oh, and then there's this guy, David. Time for a new king, and Samuel comes, and he says, Jesse, let me see your sons. And there's six of them. No, 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 no. Is that it? Is that it? No, no. There's the shepherd boy. Well, we didn't bring him and go get him. David, the shepherd boy, would take Israel to the heights. 
That's how God works, man. If I went off to college, I had no idea ever I'd be a pastor. Um, my freshman year, I come to faith. I get a chemical engineering degree. I don't know what I want to do, so I go to graduate school. And uh, I got, as I go into graduate school that summer before, I got a job paying me $2.50 an hour. And I hear they're hiring uh, an, uh, teaching assistants to teach Fortran. They don't even teach that language anymore for 600 bucks a month, be about $7.50 an hour. So I think that'd be a better job. So I apply for it and I get it. And they meet uh, Monday and Wednesday with the prof, 60 of them, and then two with me on Tuesday and 30, two sections of 30. And, and I think, you know, I kind of I like doing this. I, I, I think it's going pretty good. And some couple of students say, you know, you're, Andy, you're the one that really taught me this class. Okay. End of the first semester, I'm in the graduate student office. I'm getting my stuff. And here comes Dr. Richard. He's the prof I, walked in, I, I worked for. He says, Andy, I just looked at the course evaluations. There's nothing about the TA, but three out of four students mentioned you. I got affirmation. Teaching might be my thing. I thought about being a university professor, but nobody wants to do that. <laughs> so I went on staff with Campus Crusade and just kind of left that in the back. Three years I'm in. I'm in Fort Collins. There's no staff in Greeley, which is about 40 minutes away. So I started doing it. I'm the only one that can give the talk. About a semester and a half in, my, my, my boss, the area director, said, has anybody told you, you you have a gifting in this and that you should develop this? No, nobody's ever told me that. Well, there's a seminary in Denver. You might want to start thinking about taking a course a quarter. So that's what I did. Last piece of this picture I hire on it. Berean, 21 years ago, as a singles pastor. They've already got the guy in place to launch this church. Well, it doesn't work out, and I end up being that person. I, 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 my point. I look back at me, and, and I laugh. The pieces that God was putting together, I, I never would have imagined. People ask me, do you like your job? I said, I love my job for two reasons. One, most important, I love the people I work with. But two, I like the job fit. I can't believe God got me here. Well, that's what they're experiencing here in verse 3. And here's what it says. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Man, that God in the past, we are glad. So my question to you is, what has God done in your past? Don't let that slip away. You're not here, but that God back there is faithful now. Peterson translates it this way in the message. God was wonderful to us. We are one happy people. Why? Because the God back there, he ain't changed. It says he's immutable. He doesn't change. So let me ask the question again. Where and how has God been faithful in your life? Celebrate that. Because he hasn't changed. He's not different. So verses 1 and 2, we're looking back. Verse 3, we're in the celebration mode of right now, the present. Verses 4 through 6, we're going to look in the future. And there's two metaphors here, two pictures that God will, assurance that God will work even when it seems doubtful. Verse 4. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Well, what is that about? The south was notoriously uh, drought-stricken. It was a desert. And you'd have these ditches that were just bone dry. And all of a sudden, a rain would come, and those ditches, those streams are full, and the desert is alive like that. It changed. It seemed barren. And God showed up, and it all changed. 
like he did back then. He can do right now. He shows up and it changes. Second metaphor, verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come in with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This speaks of the farmer who every year sees a barren field and he spends time and money to put seed down in that barren field. Why would he do that? Because experience has told him that a crop will eventually come up. Well, it doesn't look good. That's okay. Over time, a crop will rise from that barren soil. Again, Peterson translates it this way in the message. And now, God, do it again. Remember, the New American Standard started with store, restore our captivity. The guy said, well, what you did back then in captivity, do that again. So this is a call. Lord, do what you've always done. Here's our first metaphor. Bring rains to our drought-stricken land. God, you can do that, and in a second, it changes. Second metaphor is talking about the farmer. Those who planted their crops in despair will shout, yes, at the harvest. So those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with armloads of blessing. The promise that God will be at work immediately or over time. See, we're asking this question, why is joy the product of a healthy Christian life? Here's what a healthy Christian understands. God's past faithfulness will continue in the future. The God who was faithful back then will continue to be. But, but Andy, you don't understand how dry it looks. You don't understand how barren. You don't, and I, I get that. I don't. But God's bigger than that. He's certainly above that and capable of working. You know, we're a culture that wants to somehow rid ourselves of pain of suffering. What can we do to get around it? The message of Psalm 126 is God steps right into that and is in the work of that and brings joy. And there's an assurance. I don't understand. I don't always get it. But I know that God is at work. We don't want to do that. We want to turn it off. So what do we do? We have a, we have a vacation. No, let me tell you. My wife and I went on vacation together. We went on vacation with our boys. I'm not against vacations. But at best, you get six weeks a year, maybe eight. If you take all six or eight, that still leaves 44 weeks that you've got to face it. You've got to come back to it. My dad always fought with his boss, and we would take these longer vacations. And near the, near the end of the, our vacation, you could see his mer- mood turn sour. He's going to have to go back to it. Nothing wrong with the vacation, but that doesn't get us away from the pain. So how do we, f- how do we fill this void? We, we want to, we want to um, reduce pain so we, we numb our nerve endings, so we don't feel. We, we get busy. We drink. We want to 
do away with disappointment. You know, people will let you down. So, so we just distance relationships, right? Because we don't want to be disappointed. We've got insecurity. We don't know if we want to apply that job. For, we don't know if we want to take that risk. So, so we eliminate risk by getting all that. That leaves this void. Part of that void is we, we fill with a, a dream vacation. But that's okay for two weeks. But then you've got to come back. How else do we fill that void? I'd say we, we fill that void with, with entertainment. If you will tell me a joke, if you will sing a song, if you will act in a movie, or you will be on a, a team and play a game and your team will win, well, I'll pay you big dollars. Fill in the, the team, the Huskers, the Wolverines, the Vikings, I, whoever. You know, people complain, why does the, the professional athlete make this much and the teacher that? Because that's a value in our culture. Please entertain me. Give me an escape, and I will pay you big dollars. Make me happy. Win the game. It's a way of stepping back, putting a buffer between us and the pain. And God says, I want you to step into it. Now, I'm no different than you. I look for an escape. So we went to seminary, uh, what, fall of 94? And we were on a pretty tight budget. And we used to do envelopes. Have you guys done envelopes? You put money in for grocery, and you put money in for entertainment, you put money in for this. And, and we had $50 each for discretionary income. That's what we had. Well, if you know me, you know my team's the University of Michigan. And they were kind of so-so. They weren't bad, but they weren't great. And seminary, it wasn't hard, but it was, you had to do the work, and it was kind of, and I'm looking for an escape. And they're... They're doing eight and four for me every year. But December, January, February, recruiting season comes around. They come in on the weekend, and, and maybe if they get some good recruits, you know, they'll be good in the future. Well, now that you can follow all that in the Internet, but back then there were 1-900 numbers you called to find out what was going on. And it was $3 for the call, a dollar for each minute. So Sunday night, I would come back from church, and we'd be home, and I'd dial up the 1-900 number to see who committed and who didn't. And again, I'm working with 50 bucks a month. We get our, our uh, monthly phone bill in March, and I spent 120 bucks on 900 numbers. I mean, I just lost track. I got so involved, so consumed. Why? Because I was looking for somebody to fill the void, something. Now, just an aside to that 1995 binge I had, many of you are big fans of Tom Brady, and he went to the big star in the NFL, he went to the University of Michigan, they were recruiting him at exactly that time. So if you want to know the story of Tom Brady's recruitment, you catch me after church and I'll tell you all about that. <laughs> tell you all about that, I sure will. You know, this, this psalm is set in an exile. We're returning from exile, the pain of living as an exile. Do you know we as followers of Jesus live as, ex, as, ex, as refugees? We live in exile. It says our citizenship is in heaven. We've got a different value system. We've got a different. And several of us have been involved with a refugee family. We're coming alongside a, an Afghan family that served the U.S. cause during the war, and so when the regime fell, they had to get out. And so they had been dealing thing, with things like a, a refrigerator that doesn't work, an air conditioner that goes bad, 
A bunch of people have been involved in this, but one person who's been running point on this is, is Chris Eubanks. Well, their little boy, they have four kids. Their, their little boy, their third kid, started eating paint chips, and he ended up with lead poisoning. He had to be in the hospital. And so Chris is on, sitting on the floor eating meals with that family while their kid is in the hospital and, and helping them navigate how do you do a refrigerator, how do you do a, 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 an air conditioner, how do you deal with medical people, there's dental appointments, there's... And, and, and people are invested in helping this family. But it's interesting to see it through their eyes. I got a small picture that my wife is an English language learner teacher for Lincoln Public Schools. So for the month of July, she has gone in and spent an hour a day with them. And I went with her on one lesson. And the lesson was, I like to, and then she had flashcards. I like to sing. And then they practice, say, I like to sing. And we practice a question. Do you like to sing? And okay, we're going to take that question. We're going to, I like to eat. Do you like? They're 40 years old. And they're trying to get, they're disoriented. They're confused. They're overwhelmed. As you follow Jesus, do you understand? That's a bit of us. We're living in a place that's not our home. There's a value system that's very different than ours. So we're going to be overwhelmed. We're going to be confused. We're going to be disoriented. And our, our tendency is to, just to step back and, and get that buffer, right? We're going to numb the pain. We're going, to, we're going to fill it. We're going to get entertained. We're going to do this. But God says, no, no, no. I want you to step into that because I'm going to be with you. Remember, I, I was with you in the past. I'm with you now. And that's ultimately God's faithfulness is ultimately seen in Jesus. Here's what Romans 8 said about him. Talking about Jesus or God, he who did not spare his own son, that being Jesus, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not with, also with him freely give us all things? Jesus will not hold back. We have reason to hope again in the midst of that suffering. Well, what does Jesus know about suffering? What does Jesus know about? Well, he actually knows a lot. Thank you for asking. He lived among us, and he died a death he didn't deserve. Here's what it said about it. Fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Now look at this. Who for the, there's our word, joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There was nothing enjoyable about the cross for Jesus. It was painful. It was humiliating. He took on the sin of the world, but he considered it a joy. Why? Because he knew God was at work in the midst of that and would redeem that, and he sure did. Jesus rose from the dead Sunday morning. Purchased our salvation. It says throughout eternity, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess him as Lord. We follow him who found joy in suffering. So here's what I want to ask you to do for a minute. Would you look back right now? Where has God been faithful in your life? Where has God showed up when you needed a job, when... You didn't know if you could have children, if you didn't know if your kid was going to respond, if you didn't know if you, didn't know if you could. Where has God showed up? You got those things? He doesn't change. He doesn't change. He'll be faithful in your future. We need to grow in our understanding. We need to grow in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus. The more we know him, the more we will trust him. That's why we're asking you to be in the Bible every day. That's why we're asking you to cultivate this relationship with God. You will begin to understand he was faithful then, will be faithful now, 
and in the future. So four or five days a week, I do these um, high interval intense training classes. And so it was Monday of this week, and uh, I walk into the YMCA, and there's a bunch of women sitting around, and what's happened is the lifeguard hasn't showed up, and they have a water aerobics class. Well, two or three of our regulars know some of them and say, oh, man, you got to come in and try a class. You ought to come in and try a class. Most of them did, but a couple thought, okay, I'll do it. And in this class, we're 50 minutes, we're up on a step, and then there's a four two-minute periods. We, she jacks up the intensity, and you get, so we're in the minute, middle of that first thing, and, and there's mirrors all around the room. And I look up, and those two new people are back in the corner, and they just stopped. And they're just trying to catch their breath. And I remember that. The first time I was in a class like that at 30 minutes, I left the class and went and sat on the counter in the boys' bathroom just to catch my breath. But I thought of these women. I thought, if you will stick with this, it won't always be this way. You can grow into this exercise if you will show up regularly. What's my point? The Christian life offers that same kind of growth, but it's not an exercise class. It's intentional time getting to know Jesus. Getting to know him will bring joy because what we'll come to understand is that he was who was faithful then will be faithful now, and no matter how desert-stricken, no matter how barren it looks in the future, we can trust him then. Why then is joy the product of a healthy Christian life? A healthy Christian understands that God's past faithfulness will continue in the future, that we grow in our knowledge and understanding of that Jesus, that we could exhibit this joy as a fruit of that relationship. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, uh, we're grateful for Jesus. Um, He modeled joy in suffering. He showed us how to live, and he promised that though we live as refugees, as exiles. He's in the middle of that pain, that confusion, that disorientation, that lack of understanding. Lord, that we would be joyful people, not because of something we're mustering up from deep within, but because we have a knowledge of the Savior who exhibited joy and wants to produce joy in our life, that we take hold of Him. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.